Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again. It'll be better when we're able to meet in person. It's getting ready to, uh, to come here this morning. My kids were excited for me that I got to come to the point where they put on their Sunday best. My daughter put on her dress and the boys put on button-ups and oh, they're probably sitting on the couch right now watching this. So it'll be good when we can gather again. I'm sure they'll, um, they'll be so happy to be able to see people and to fellowship together as I will be. Um, the title of our message today uh, is taken right out of chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, simply put, uh, then it happened. For me, it was as fitting of a title for this chapter of David's life as, as any that I could think of. Uh, we literally have just read through an entire section of triumphs and victories. If you remember, uh, looking back at, at David winning war after war after war, literally in, in the previous chapter, uh, uh, two chapters prior to this, and then you look at his noble actions with the descendants of Saul, where he wants to honor uh, his uh, his children and his descendants, and, and he's really on a high, uh, to say the least. Incredible things that he's accomplished. Uh, and it's a testament to really the majority of his life. Um, unquestionably, there were trying times. There were times that were difficult, but David's rise from the unnoticed shepherd boy to the king of Israel is an example of God's favor and God's anointing and really a testimony of his life. Uh, before people and before the Lord. His life really was marked by his relationship with God and uh, his character was attested to by no one less than God himself when he said, here's a man after my own heart. Uh, so really David's life was, uh, was lived in a way that was above reproach uh, for the majority of his life. David wrestled with beasts in the field he slew giants. He demonstrated that he was able to, to slay his tens of thousands, uh, which made Saul jealous, if you remember that. He uh, evaded the madness of the king when he was pursuing him. He led an army of disgruntled men to success in the wilderness. Uh, he refrained from avenging himself of injustices that he suffered. And yet, for the mighty man that he was, for the majority of his life, or for almost the totality of his life, both in spirit and in presence, sin still crouched at his door, and its desire was for him. Its desire was to master him. He was well-seasoned in life, right? He was accustomed to battle. However, in this season that we're looking at this morning, in his life, he let his guard down. Then it happened. We're going from high to high, from apex to apex, and then we come to a screeching halt in chapter 11 and we plummet with the phrase, then it happened. Uh, we're going to try to capture the big picture of what's going on here as we look at the specifics of, of David's life, and I don't want you to miss it uh, for, for what it is. Obviously, a majority of people are familiar with the story, those that have studied the Bible for years and those that are newer to the faith and even those outside the faith, they, they're familiar with the story of David and, and Bathsheba. Uh, but I want us to realize there's principles here that we can gain for our own life as to the effect of sin, the dangers of it, and, and how we can navigate and perhaps avoid the same pitfall that, that David came to uh, in this chapter that we're looking at now. Uh, one thing that I want to start out by saying is that we have to note that there is a tremendous significance 
of a godly and disciplined life that's crucial to the believer. And the lack of of discipline truly leads to the potential for downfall. And we're going to see that played out a little bit as we move down through this chapter. Um, The the passage begins by describing for us a season, a literal season, the season of spring. It says, in the spring, at the time that kings go out to battle. Uh, So rather than attempt to wage war in, in the cold weather, in the unfavorable terrain, where there was sparse provision for uh, the, the army and for their beasts, they would take advantage of, of the spring season when the warmer weather came to pass, when there was food for them on the trees, uh, and they could be well provided for. So at least those things they didn't have to worry about and they could focus on, on the wars at hand. So needless to say, when, when the spring came, so did the banners of war and the drums and the war drums. Uh, they began to be beaten across the land and the kingdoms went out to fight. So this is the season we're in. We're in spring. Um, you know, much like we're in uh, at this moment. And it was, it was appropriate for them to go out. And so what David did during this time, as all kingdoms would do, they sent their, their armies out, and uh, David sent Joab and his servants and all Israel uh, with them. And it appears that David wanted to finish off the war that he had with the Ammonites that had taken place the previous year. If you guys covered back in uh, the previous chapters... Uh, we saw that there was the Ammonites and the Arameans or the Syrians that they were fighting. He was fighting kind of on a split front, and uh, he chose one front over the other. Um, and Joab had returned uh, to Jerusalem in, in chapter 10 after the Ammonites fled into the city. And perhaps uh, there wasn't enough time to set siege to the city that they fled to uh, before he was able to go back to Jerusalem. And um, David said, you know what, let's finish this off now. We're, we're back to war. Let, let's do away with them. And if you remember that the reason he went to war with the Ammonites in the first place was because he was snubbed uh, by their king when he sent some servants to, to console, console him for the loss of his, uh, of his father. And the, David's servants were, were shamed, and so David went to war against them. So there was a bit of a personal vendetta that he had here, and he wanted to, he wanted to finish it off. Um, what I want to point out at this point, we, we've already talked about how David's gone from high to high. Um, I want to talk about how that in, in these places of victory, in these places of triumph, in these places of, of high times, there's tremendous vulnerability for the individual. There's tremendous vulnerability for the people of God. Um, I say that because this is David's circumstance here. Uh, he's in every sense victorious. He's in every sense on a high. Uh, but at this point, rather than going out to war, it says that David decides to uh, stay in Jerusalem. Uh, and this begins his plummet uh, from victory down into the jaws of sin. Right? It was established that this was the time where kings should go out to war, not just their, their militaries, not just their uh, soldiers. And for whatever reason, David said, I'm not going to fulfill this duty. Perhaps he excused himself because the battle was more of a cleanup operation. As we mentioned, he's just cleaning up a war that he started uh, previously. Or perhaps he was rewarding himself for having such a success uh, leading up to this, and he wanted to, you know, just enjoy his time. Or maybe he was, you know, getting used to the off-season and he was getting older, and the thought of hanging out in a tent on a field in battle uh, wasn't as appealing as hanging out in his palace. Uh, Whatever the reason for that decision, it would be a reason that he would soon regret because he's going to quickly realize that no one is immune to falling into sin. Uh, David, essentially, he's let his guard down in not just physically, but spiritually as well. 
It's kind of a, a parallel picture here. Physically, he's not ready, preparing himself for war. And spiritually, he's definitely not ready and preparing himself for war. So in a time where he otherwise would have been intentionally focused and, and strategizing and planning his way to, to be able to be successful in, in might and in, in war, his mind and his eyes were, were free to wander. They weren't consumed by the things they should have been consumed with, and, and they had liberty. He had afforded himself the, the luxury to relax. And I get the sense that he might have had a misplaced confidence in himself. Perhaps he began to think quite highly of himself. Obviously, he perhaps had some sort of physical reason to think along those lines. Um, but there is a danger when we're coming off fresh victories. right? There's a danger when we're coming off of these highs. Because it's easy to bask in this moment longer than is necessary. Longer than is healthy. Because we begin to embrace a sense of invincibility. Which perhaps for David was a very easy thing to do. Because he was... Uh, invincible in a lot of ways. He, he'd had multiple victories in a row. He was on a winning streak. Uh, but he failed to take the advice that the Apostle Paul warns us of in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, where we're told, Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. He thought he stood. In times of victory, we think we stand. We get a little bit of pride built up into us. And then we know that the stumble or the trip is not far away. This season, he was meant to be on high alert. His guard was down and sin was ready to strike. Status, position, victories, they're not a shield from present temptation. We can't live on our past laurels. We can't live uh, on our past victories to think that we're going to have success in the future. To do so would be set us up for failure. That's exactly what David falls into prey here. He says... Perhaps I'm okay. I don't need to fight right now when the fight is waged every day in the spirit. And so when David's at home, it says that when evening came, he arose from the bed as we're tracking down through the passage. So not only was David not out fighting, he was taking naps in the afternoon and then rising up in the evening when he should have been going to bed in the evening and awake in the afternoon He's reversing everything, and the order is flipping on him. And when you begin to reverse the order, when you begin to live an undisciplined life, you begin to open up the door to temptation. He's already doing what he's not supposed to be doing, and now he has the time and the energy to spend in places where he shouldn't be spending it. It's not a good combination. And as the old saying goes, idle hands find the devil's work. Idleness opens the door to temptation. Uh, I want to give us caution there because I believe in this season that whether we're in seasons of victories or we're in lows right now, uh, there's tremendous temptation for, for idleness, whether um, willingly choosing it or, or being forced to choose it uh, in light of these lockdowns, in light of our lives being shifted around and things that we're normally supposed to be participating in, we're not able to, perhaps not by choice, but by force. Nevertheless, idleness is a is present. I can testify to that. There's things that I should be out doing. We should be out getting ready to go to church. We should be out. Things that, that we normally participate in um, that are being taken away from us. And we've got to fill that time with something else. And the temptation there is to let other things creep in to fill that time that, that aren't right. We begin to open the door and invite things in. So in this sense, David's dereliction of duty, of not going out to war... He's opened up the door to an undisciplined approach to life. And, and by doing so, he's invited sin 
to come straight in. So I want to caution us and make the parallel and make the connection for us as well that idleness can come in many forms in many ways and that's an open door for things to start to creep in. So just make sure we're keeping that in check. You know, Paul had this uh, view of sin or, or, or view of approaching his life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, he says, I strictly discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He understood the potential for himself to waver. He understood his potential to wander, especially as his flesh was given opportunity to participate in things that perhaps they shouldn't participate in. And he says, no, I make my body submit. I strictly discipline it. If we don't stand guard and if we don't keep our flesh in check through the grace and the power of God, we're going to be mastered by it and we're going to be overcome by it. Well, I'll make that clear. It's not ourselves self-disciplining ourselves in an illegalistic mindset. I hope we're beyond that, that thinking. But it's us resting and committing ourselves to the grace of God to be able to withstand and to be able to live a godly life. And we must pay direct attention lest we be overtaken by this, this uh, fleshly life. And so David's downward spiral as he begins to live in this way, as he begins to substitute discipline for undiscipline, his, his downward spiral begins to peak, peak up. And what I've uh, kind of hopefully will summarize for us in this description of his fall is something that should be common, or not should be, something that is common uh, to all of us, uh, some, some framework of sin, if you will, uh, I'll begin to paint for us. And I, I've titled it simply, Understanding the Nature of Sin. Understanding that the things that David fell to, or the things that David experienced, are things that you and I can experience in every sense of, of the word. Um, so David, on the rooftop, he's walking around, and it says he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very, very beautiful in appearance. And so his aimless wandering has brought his eyes to wander where they should not have wandered and his eyes to venture where they should not have ventured. And the first thing I want to note out here is, is the lust of the eyes. Right? The lust of the eyes is... Uh, I'll give you the outline now. We get that uh, through Scripture that we have the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And, and these three things really kind of encompass the totality of sin itself, and I'll explain that through David's experience. And as his eyes landed on the figure of the unsuspecting woman, David beheld her beauty, but he failed to, he failed to discipline himself and turn away from it. And sin can begin with a simple unguarded glance and evolve to death. Right? A simple look is enough to end in death. And in this case, we'll see the tragic end is going to be exactly that. An unguarded glance. It was Job who said in chapter 31, verse 1 of his book, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. For David here, there was no such covenant that was made. Definitely not a covenant that was honored. He already surrendered, not that he was even aware of being taken over, as he willingly gave sin the domain to reign. He allowed his eyes to linger and to absorb and to give birth to something unsuspecting to him. Long before he had called her to himself, David committed adultery. He committed adultery in his heart, according to the words of Jesus, right? On the words on the Sermon on the Mount. If anyone looks at a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery in his heart. So David's already guilty as charged. He's done. 
It's, it, it's, it, it's already been birthed inside of him. Jesus, at this point, his advice in any such circumstance was this. Now, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Here we have to give recognition to the view that Jesus had concerning sin. Right? The weight and the gravity at that point. If David would have dealt with sin, let me bring it back a bit. If David would have understood the gravity of sin and where it could lead to, he would have dealt with it far more drastically than he did. And I suppose much would be the same for us. If we had a healthy and total picture of the end course of sin, I suspect that we would deal with the potential of dabbling into sin early on. We would nip it in the bud, if you will. We would stop it right then and there. And not just gently, we would deal with it harshly, as Jesus said here. Take your eye out and chuck it. If it causes you to stumble, if it causes you to sin. So David's eyes at that point, he was lusting after this beautiful woman. At that point, it should have been, if he understood where this was going, what was going to happen to Bathsheba, to Uriah, to the people around him, to his family down the line, to his kingdom. If he understood the weight of all of that and and, and most dramatically his relationship with God, the loss of his eyes would have been nothing. But he failed there. I think our uh, our understanding and our view of the gravity of sin, it's, it's grossly lacking. And we need to have a healthier Christ-like view so we're better prepared to check our flesh and walk in the Spirit. I must admit, as I was going through this passage, although uh, I am quite familiar with it, as many would be, it is quite sobering to think about sin, to think about the consequences of it, to understand that this isn't just unique to David, to let me absorb his failures and to understand there are my failures just as easily. And to recognize here, I need to hold sin in its proper place so I can approach it and deal with it from the beginning. The vision that entered his unguarded eyes conceived lustful thoughts in his unguarded heart and unlustful thoughts in his unguarded mind. And the lust of the eyes took hold and he continued his tumble because it's not going to stay there. We have to deal with lust drastically because it will save disaster later on. If our eyes are left unchecked, unbridled, it'll allow the rest to fall into sin. The whole body will be put into jeopardy. People around us will suffer. Again, Jesus said in in, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light that is in you is darkness, how great. Is that darkness? You know, it could easily be said here, we need to be setting our eyes on things that are holy, on things that are true, on things that are light, to fill our bodies with light. If we're filling our bodies with sin and darkness, the the, the eye is the window to the soul. And if you're filling that with darkness, it's going to be absorbed, and and you use your eye to direct the entirety of your body. It's, It's true in the physical sense. My eyes allow me to operate everything else in front of me. It, it, it directs me how to respond, and it, it takes my body to success when it's informing me of what I'm looking at. 
Spiritually, it's the same. When I'm absorbed and I'm, I'm beholding darkness and I'm letting things come in that shouldn't be coming in, it's going to be informing or darkening my counsel in a different way. And your whole body is going to be plunged into sin. So the lust of the eye, perhaps the beginning, is, is extremely detrimental to the rest of the body. So after viewing her, after conceiving in his mind, David sent and he inquired about the woman in verse 3. At this point, I can imagine there must have been some sort of check, or I could hope that there must have been some sort of check in David's heart, right? He, after all, he was the man after God's own heart. The Holy Spirit must have been with him, giving him some sort of goad or some sort of nudge. But however uncomfortable he was with his thoughts, he wanted to proceed to entertain his flesh, which should give you an indication of how strong our fleshly desires can be. If a man such as David, with the testimony that he had, could easily dismiss holiness and desire to pursue his flesh in place of it, you and I should be warned. Uh, David succumbed to his temptation, but it was no one's fault but his own. James 1.14 clearly tells us, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. I've heard some people try to blame Bathsheba. She was taking a bath. Right? David is responsible for what he's looking at. David is responsible for his every action that proceeds after that. Everyone is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That came from within him. And at this point, we are in the delivery room of sin. David's out there in his palace. He's looking, and it, it's the delivery room. Because in James 1.15 it says, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin, and sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Lust was conceived in his eyes as they lingered on a form of the woman that was bathing. And the natural process after conception is birth. And in this case, it's in the fruition or in the form of sin. He yielded to his lustful desires and he pursued them. Because he continued to inquire. He wanted to entertain it further. Um, if David only would have considered his ways soberly, perhaps he would have had restraint. He could have looked to God for his escape, but he failed. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. David wasn't suffering a a, a tremendous trial that's unique to him. There wasn't something that he couldn't resist, this uh, irresistible temptation, if you will. It doesn't exist. There's no excuse. God will make a way of escape should we choose to depend on his grace. If he's hit with lust, he essentially just had to yield to God and say, Lord, forgive me. David had his way out, but he didn't resist. And the consequences... They're devastating. All temptation is able to be overcome by the grace of God. Don't fall into this trap that, that today, especially, that, that people feed us. Oh, I have this, I have this sin that I just wrestle with and, and this temptation that, that, that I can't bear. Stop wrestling with it. God has given you the grace to overcome it. There's no fault that, that, that this sin has authority over us. That's a lie. There's no power that sin has over you that you don't have over it in the sense that God has given us the grace to overcome it in every sense of the word. I say that strongly because I'm confident in the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit 
that he gives us liberty from those bondages. If we're in bondage, if we're wrestling, it's no fault but our own. It's no fault but our own. And we have to own that. We have to accept that before we can embrace the grace of God and to ask him for that strength. But here, tragically, we know that that from the birth, sin will leave a trail of destruction in its wake. If we don't check it here, we're going to, the consequences are going to come. It's going to culminate in death. Another thing I want to point out about sin as we look at the nature of sin, right? And the lust of the eyes that goes down through and we, we're moving our way down. That, that tragic falls often have a, a series of missteps behind it, right? I began this chapter by titling, Then It Happened. But don't let me persuade you with that title into thinking that it was all of a sudden, that this just came out of nowhere. I, I highly doubt that. Here is a man who was at the apex of everything. He was living victoriously, as we've described previously. But in his temptation, he yielded. But his fall wasn't, wasn't by chance. And it wasn't without perhaps a more subtle journey of longer compromise behind him. In the moments even leading up to David's life, we're going to see here as we track through it, he had every chance to stop. It was one step, two step, three step, four step, before he actually committed the, the physical act of sin, right? His first step was he decided not to go. Then he decided to be lazy and take a nap. Then he decided to look at a woman. Then he decided to ask about her. It, it, he didn't go straight into to, to rape and adultery. It was the smaller steps behind him of compromise, of an undisciplined life that brought him to this point of then the manifestation of the sin took hold. So in smaller sense, that, that's absolutely true. But in a similar sense, you go back, and there's evidence that, that of blatant compromise in his life that would flag a coming shipwreck. Namely, if I look at Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, we get him described as taking concubines and wives, plural, to himself. That's a no-no. God's law in Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 17, forbade kings to do this. So David, for the man of God that he was, was already compromising. And it's no mystery then that it would have evolved into the gross action that he partook in here. Gross sin is often the manifestation of something that's already been growing deeper. It's the outworking of of a longer-running issue of the heart that has been slowly eroding away and weakening the convictions and the character and the conscience of the person. Sometimes no one knows it except you, and you might not even know it yourself. We give ourselves a little bit of leeway here. We give ourselves a little bit of provision there for the flesh. We entertain certain conversations here. We say, oh, I can handle that, or I can watch this. Oh, I've watched everything on Netflix, and maybe I can do a show that I normally wouldn't watch, but there's nothing really else to watch, so I'll watch it. And then it opens up a door. And then one thing evolves into another thing. Maybe I'll click here. Maybe I'll go look at that. Maybe I'll accept this invitation. It's not an accident. There's a series of steps often behind the big manifestation. Goes on in verse 3. He was, when he was responded to with this question, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David received a response to his question. And to be honest with you, I'm uncertain why he asked it. Because... <laughs> His flesh was set on fire with lust the second he laid eyes on Bathsheba. He was already in sin because he was married. And he was looking at her, and if any answer regarding her identity 
was going to pour cold water onto the raging fire that was inside of him, lusting after her. The answer that he should have received, that should have quenched his appetite, should have been this. Why? Because it's clear that Bathsheba was a married woman. It should have stopped him dead in his tracks. Yeah, you know what? I, I, I played with this in my head. She's a married woman. I cannot. I'm married. First of all, I should not. I cannot. She's a married woman. Secondly, Uriah the Hittite was her husband. I mentioned this because we must understand that David would have known who Uriah was full well. Uriah was counted among one of David's mighty men. This, this was the elite special forces group of David's army, and it wasn't like it was a big cohort or contingent. It was 37 men. He would have known him. He would have known him as a man of honor, a man of strength, a man of valor. Those two things alone should have just doused his, his, his lustful appetite. He said, you know what, I can't do this because of her and because of him and because of me. I cannot. But now, it, dis- it failed to dissuade him. and He was hell-bent, literally hell-bent on satisfying his lust. His reason, his conviction, his self-control were dominated by the sin that was ravaging through his body. Contrary to Romans chapter 6, verse 12, he let sin reign in his mortal body, and he obeyed its desires. He had a new master at this point, and it wasn't God. And you see how quickly someone's obedience and allegiance can flip. The second you yield to the flesh in the smallest way, it will dominate. We're called not to. Sin was no longer crouching at his door. It was all over him. And then verse 4, he lay with her. So we move from the lust of the eyes to the lust of the flesh. He lay with her. David had her brought to him, and in four short words, we have a full-blown sin on display. In the moment of time, David committed the unthinkable of both rape and adultery squared. Adultery against Uriah and adultery against his marriage. And rape against Bathsheba. Bathsheba would have been powerless to reject his advances. Remember that, right? You say, oh, it takes two to tango. He was the king of Israel. She was done. He forced his royal authority upon her to satisfy his appetite. He abused her in every sense of the word. And in doing so, he violated marriage covenants on both sides. Know this, the appetite of the flesh, it's never satiated. It will always increase the more you entertain it. Right? It's not like hunger that will go away once you feed it. In this case, once you feed it, it wants more. Because it grows. And the bigger it grows, the more it wants. The more it wants, the more it eats. The more it eats, the more it grows. And it's going to consume David and all those around him in the utmost way. He was satisfied in a moment. His thirst was quenched, perhaps for a second, at least the physical side of him. But he would soon find out what that moment would cost him. It would be devastating. Because in verse 5, Bathsheba said, I'm pregnant. He sent her on her way. How disgusting is that, by the way? He uses her, abuses her. Let's her get cleaned up, sends her on her way. He thought, I'm done. I satisfied myself. 
she comes back to him. Perhaps within a month or two, I'm pregnant. David probably thought he got away with a little escapade. He was just indulging himself for a moment. Who was he accountable to after all? Who was going to hold him to account? You know, it was Job who said in chapter 24, verse 15, The eye of the adulterer watches for twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he disguises his face. You know, perhaps in the twilight hours, David was up there watching her bathe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get away with this. I don't even think I have to disguise myself. But he did it in the twilight hours. But his sin would find him out, as sin does, and everything will be laid bare and is laid bare before the Lord. Uh, presumably, David, as he received word from the Lord from Bathsheba, lust wasn't the only thing that was conceived that night. Right? She was now pregnant with his child. So he says, you know what? I've got to fix this. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Enter the pride of life. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, now the pride of life. It's evident that David had let this incident hide in his closet without dealing with it. He was unrepentant. He, 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 he let it sit there and it resurfaced. Again, as sin tends to do, it's trying to hide a beach ball underwater. It's going to pop up eventually when you're not thinking about it, when you lose you know, focus or when you're just tired of doing it. He's continue, He's continuing at this point to cover up his sin. Because why? Pride will keep you from confession and repentance. The pride of life will stop you from coming to the place of true healing. Rather than confessing his sin at this point, you know, Bathsheba comes, I'm pregnant. Rather than saying, I've messed this up royally. I've been found out. I should have confessed in the beginning. One, I shouldn't have done it. I should have, you know, made it right then. Now, it's back. Rather than confess at this point, he continues to try to clean up his mess. But his efforts only bring further destruction. Because pride will continue to assert that we can fix the problem ourselves. I liken it to this. It's very trivial. I don't know if it, 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 it does the, the issue justice, but it's like if we're filthy with, with, with mud or with oil and we're just in sin and, and we're called to clean something and we try to clean it up, but the, the fact is, 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 is we're all messy already. We can't clean something because we're a mess ourselves. And it's what David's trying to do in his pride. Oh, I can fix it. No, you can't, David. You cannot. Not only are you not going to fix it, you're going to make it worse. Pride will, will leave us unwilling to repent, unwilling to humble ourselves. And this is where I want to bring the connection back to us in Genesis chapter 3, as I promised, and, and, and why we uh, opened up this morning with Ted reading that section. Because we first saw this pattern of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, if you will, in the Garden of Eden when the first humans fell. We saw the story initiate there when Adam and Eve were told not to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We saw that Satan began to tempt them. You know, they looked at the fruit and saw that it was beautiful. The lust of the flesh, oh, it'll be good for eating. They took it. And the, and, and the pride of life then, you know, oh, if I eat it, I'll, I'll be like, you know, I'll, I'll know good from evil. I'll be like God. And God's only keeping this from you, as the serpent said. And then, what do they try to do? They try to hide themselves. They covered themselves up. They try to fix their own mess. 
They covered themselves up with, with leaves and then they try to hide themselves from the Lord when he came looking for them. So you can see this isn't unique to David. And the reason I want to point this out is because don't think this is uh, an anomaly. Don't think this is just uh, a, a once-off. This pattern repeats itself since Adam and Eve in the garden all throughout history to you and I today. We have a, a, a case on display for us today with, with David's life, but this pattern is our pattern. Hopefully not our pattern, but the pattern of sin in our life, if it goes that way, is definitely there. The story repeats itself. Be aware of that and understand the story well. Uh, to, to take the secular approach uh, of saying those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. You know, if we don't know the history of our faith, we don't know the history of sin, we don't know the origins uh, of our, our folly, we're going to repeat it. And we repeat it over and over and over again. It's something that uh, isn't a mystery. When sin has dominated and we've been mastered by it, our pride keeps us from the only remedy and the grace and the forgiveness of God. Because as God came looking for them, they try to hide themselves and God said, no. I, I, and he set a plan into motion. Obviously, there were consequences. But he set a plan into motion knowing that the leaves couldn't cover them. He had to shed the blood of innocent animals. And the blood had to, had to take away the sin and to cover them with the skins. And then he sent them out. But he made a covenant that I would save them. That he would save them by crushing the serpent's head. And by sending the promise of the Messiah. Um, but David's decline, as he further goes into this, is continued to be magnified in his attempts to hide his actions. He wasn't ready to come forward. He wasn't ready to be covered by the blood of the Lamb. He wasn't ready to receive the grace and the correction of God because his pride kept him there. Look, if you're steeped right now in a situation where, uh, you know, everything has hit the fan, um, don't keep trying to hide it. Don't. don't. Just come clean, if you will. Come clean before the Lord and, and, and quit making a mess. You're not going to fix it. it. It truly has to be a humbling of yourself and to take the consequences that God brings because ultimately they're going to be for your benefit. Anything otherwise is going to result in the rest of the example we see here in the, in the case of David. So he called Uriah. Uriah came to him in verse 7. I'll try to move through this. Um, and against the black canvas of David's actions, Uriah's honor and his character shines like the brightest star in the darkest of nights. And I wonder if David was able to look at Uriah in the eye when he came in and reported to him. And I would suspect not. I would suspect not. All he could muster up was pointless small talk. Right? Probably looking at a sideways glance. How's the war going, Uriah? What else is he going to say to this man? He's just taken his wife and done this to her. What else is he going to say to him? The question that David asked, really, it shouldn't have been even needed to have been asked. If David was at war, he shouldn't have been able to, to need to ask his soldier how the war was going. David, you should have been there. I'm sure eager to get out of his conversation and the pressing weight of his guilt, David directs him to go home, get cleaned up and relax. David's thought was that Uriah would just go and be eager to, to be home with his wife and spend time with her. He hoped that he would lay with her and it would be assumed that any child born would have been a result of this time that he spent home. David's plan was clever in his mind, but he didn't anticipate Uriah's actions. David was trying to cover himself. He was trying to portray himself as generous, as considerate. And it's interesting what pride does, isn't it? 
It's so backwards and it flips everything around because pride will continually exalt self at the expense of others. It does that. In allowing his soldier the opportunity to be in the midst of, uh, in the, with his wife in the midst of war, he was portraying himself as to be, look how kind I am. Uriah, just go have some time off. Have some R&R. And he was giving him unmerited gifts. He sent a gift out after Uriah, some bribery, if you will. So he was trying to be considerate trying to be generous, trying to portray himself as something uh, other than he was because the exact opposite was true. David was the one who had stolen. He had not given. He had no regard to his soldier in any way who was at war. But pride tries to contort things and twist the truth to keep yourself looking good, at least on the outside. But Uriah refused to go home that night and instead he slept at the door of his king's house. David was confused by what happened. Surely Uriah would have loved to have gone home after the battle and the journey and being away from his wife. The shame must have overwhelmed David. I, I can imagine, right? I'm, all, I'm speculating here. I'm bringing conjecture to it. But this is a real person and real people going through real things. Just imagine what that must have been like. Uriah had every right to go home and to be with his wife. He had been away. It was a long journey, a tough battle. His wife was beautiful. It was his house. He was told by the king to go. He had every reason. David had absolutely no reason to do what he did. He had his own wife. He was not away from home. He was not in battle. And he took her from his home, from her home, so that he could lay with someone who was not his wife. The, the contrast couldn't be more stark. Uriah's reasoning must have smashed David like a ton of bricks. The ark is out there away from home. Israel's intense. His commanding officer was out in the open field. Needless to say, Uriah's honor surpassed David's expectations in every way. I think that's telling of the standards that David had lowered himself. I think that David must have been an honorable man at another point in his life. But he dropped the bar. And he expected others to have dropped the bar with him. He let his guard down. He wasn't willing to live above reproach. Uriah said, no, I'm keeping that here. I have every reason, but I'm living above reproach. And if we live our life in that manner, what, what chance do we give for people to blaspheme the Lord in our life? What chance do we have people to bring a charge of guilt against us that is true? None. David had surmised that, that others would have lowered the standards if they were given the opportunity, but Uriah's honor would not allow him to would not allow him to indulge himself when he knew that his comrades were out fighting a battle, when he knew that he was supposed to be there as well. He had such integrity and such conviction set before him. Undoubtedly, again, I believe that he was convicted by the integrity of his soldier. Nevertheless, what does David do? He doesn't stop. He continues to cover his sin because pride will go to any lengths to conceal sin. Pride will run away from God. Pride will exalt itself to its own shame and to its own hurt before surrendering. Seeing that Uriah's character could not be compromised willingly, David says, you know what? This is my next plan. He starts to get a bit more devious. I'm going to intoxicate him. I'm going to blur his reasoning. Surely, when he's out of his sound mind, he'll slip. But even in a drunken stupor, Uriah drinks. He's drunk. Uriah's convictions pull through. He upholds them. And no temptation would rule over him, even in this manner. 
I think that's an indictment on David who couldn't even resist temptation in his right mind. Here was a drunk man, a soldier, with every enticement laid before him. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. So we've got the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And then ultimately we know sin evolves into death. And we're going to look at the wages of sin. So David, you know what? This is it. He wrote a letter in verse 14 to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. The audacity and the lengths that David was willing to go to to hide his sin, it should alarm us. Because you know what? David is not just uh, someone in history. David is an example of human nature. We should recognize the depths that human nature is willing to go because that is who we are. We're human. And we all have the potential to participate in the actions that David went to here. It should alarm us. Bribery, deception, intoxication. They hadn't worked. So David crafted a plan so devious and so wicked that it's hard to fathom that the sweet psalmist of Israel could even think, let alone act, on a plan such as this. David ordered the secret execution of Uriah to be orchestrated as a casualty of war. He sent orders for this by the hand of Uriah. So he gave him the letter and he made him carry his own death sentence to war. If David had any conscience left regarding this matter, it's evident that it's completely seared at this point. How seared in our conscience do we have to be? And that should be devastating to us because the more and more we, we, we open up to sin the, and the longer we entertain it, the longer we embrace it, the colder and colder we get, the more seared in our conscience we become. And David's gone. Joab dutifully carries out David's orders and he leaves Uriah to die at the hands of the enemy. And perhaps there's something to say there about Joab's character, but we're going to keep our focus there uh, for now on to David. Lust was conceived. Sin was born. Death ensued. That's James' pattern he gives us. It's following perfectly here. It's the pattern of sin always. Lust conceives death. Death brings, sorry, lust conceives sin. Sin brings about death. Every single time. In his attempt to cover his adultery and rape, David is now guilty of murder. He murders the honorable Uriah the Hittite. And he's guilty of murder of several other valiant soldiers. The consequences of sin will leave a trail of death. Always. It's full blown here. We're, 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 we're at its climax. I actually say we're, we're, we're right before the summit. If this isn't bad enough, I believe the worst would be the, the, the suffering of the wrath of God on unrepented sin in our life. David would have suffered this greatly. We're going to cover that in a, in a few moments. But death now, guilty of murder. Verse 25. He sends out word. The action takes place. Joab says, okay, go back to his messenger and let David know I've done what he asked me to do. If he tells you, you know what, why'd you do that? Tell him Uriah is dead. And, and David's words to the messenger in response are just telling of uh, how callous he's become. He said, well, tell him this. Be encouraged. For sword devours one as well as another. <laughs> what is that? David's response to the messenger uh, to the report reveals <laughs> how dark and how deep he's gone in his sin. Because really, it wasn't the sword devouring that day. 
David said the sword devours one as well as the other. It wasn't the sword. It was sin. And it was his sin. His sin devoured that day and evolved into death. His unyielding attempts to keep hidden, it devoured innocent lives. Many people. Even with the death of Uriah, sin would continue to ensue David in the inward man. He thought he'd taken care of the problem. I've covered it up, finally. The bones in my closet are gone. I fixed it. I knew I could do it. Perhaps his thoughts were as devastating as it might have felt. In verse 27, Bathsheba finds out her husband's dead. Look, I can't imagine her thought process in all this. and I can't speculate there because Scripture doesn't give us any insight into that. Um, but I'm sure you could imagine. She knew David's guilt. She probably connected the dots. She became his wife in verse 27. And, and then she bore him a son. So he called her. Uriah was dead. Let her mourn for a bit. And he, and he brought her in. And whether it was out of guilt or some sort of obligation that he, that he had a sense of or, or some attempt to appease his conscience, uh, he takes Bathsheba in. I don't know if there's any honor in that. But there would have been an unbearable fire of guilt inside David. We talk, he talks about that fire, I believe, in Psalm 51. It's like a fire inside of him. He was melting away. Um, there was tremendous consequences to pay for what he had done. Still coming. It wasn't over. Yes, David was God's anointed. He was a man who pursued the things of God. But God's evaluation of David's character here are clear at the end of the chapter. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. God isn't a respecter of persons. He doesn't play favorites. Scripture is honest concerning its heroes. Why include this? Every other chapter here, David's incredible. We could easily just cut and paste that, move it out. God says, no, I want this in. I think it's in there for, for very specific reasons. We must learn from this example. We must understand. And God's view of this, clear. It was evil. This was truly a tragedy in David's life. It was a dark stain on his record that was otherwise remarkably righteous. And it's sobering. And it should be considered heavily by all of us. If one such as David could commit such a heinous act, where do we fall? Disobedience to God's design is inherently self-destructive. Let's remember that. Look at this, uh, if you call an epitaph or the summary of David's life in 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, says this. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything the Lord commanded all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. I'm sure he longed to take back those actions that day and have this tagline removed from the record of his life. Disobedience to God's design is not only destructive to us, but it's destructive to others around us. Right? The pain that he would have been spared had he not indulged his lust. The loss of life that would have been not occurring. The lives of those others that would have been unfazed. The turmoil that he would have avoided as the king. The family schisms that would not have occurred. Right, Because as we read the consequences, and we'll talk about it next week, uh, the consequences were still going to come. David would face them heavily. 
they were tragic consequences. They're self-destructive in the immediate. They're destructive to those around us. But beyond the evident outward consequences, it must be understood that the wrath of God also rests on the unrepentant sinner. Right? So we've gone from the lust of the eyes to the lust of flesh to the pride of life. Now we're talking about the wages of sin. And we're wrapping it up to the point where it costs, not just outwardly, but inwardly in our relationship with God. David would burn within, no longer with lust, but with guilt, until he would confess and repent. I'm thankful there is a chapter 12. I can't get to it today, so stay tuned for that. And I'm thankful there is a Psalm 51. And we're going to look at those in depth, and we're going to look at how God brings a sinner to repentance, and how there is grace, how there is healing for such a fall as this. But today, we would do well to contemplate this season of David's life soberly. I mean that heavily, right? It was quite, quite heavy moving through this passage. You know, perhaps echoing the words of Bradford, there but for the grace of God go I. Yes, aware of God's provision to keep us from sin, but also with a keen sense of personal responsibility that we play in living a holy life by standing in the grace of God. So David's life is an example as a man of God in more ways than one. Today it's a reminder that anyone can fall, but no one has to fall. Right? Today is a reminder that anyone can fall. The most seasoned saint, the most virtuous individual. But the beauty is no one has to fall. We look at the promise given from the fall of man, the consequences that happened there. Sin has its way, but God ultimately wins. And he gives us grace to overcome and to have the liberty and to be freed from the power of sin and death in this life and forever in the life to come. So let's close in worship as we look to God and recognize our potential and ask Him for the grace to be able to stand. If there's any unrepentant sin in your heart, I pray that this would be the morning that you stop and humble yourself and you receive the forgiveness of God. You take the correction when it comes and you take the healing with His grace standing out to you. Stop now and don't go any further. Let the destruction and the trail be over and God will restore and God will forgive. Let's praise Him for His grace and for His mercy.